This is Bruce Van Dusen, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya. What's up? Hey, Ben. It's almost Christmas. It really is almost Christmas. It just only feels like it's March 4,000th. It doesn't, it, it's not, we're, here we are and it's almost the end of the year and everyone's acting like, hey, when 2020 is over, everything will be great again. And I'm like, you know, 2020, just the trailer for 2021. Oh my God, please. <laughs> no. Oh man, that's rough. Oh, it's dark. It's true. It's pretty darn dark. <laughs> but cheer me up a little bit. Who is on the show today? On the show today is incredible director and author Bruce Van Dusen, and he wrote a book. Yeah, he wrote a book called 60 Stories About 30 Seconds, How I Got Away with Becoming a Pretty Big Commercial Director Without Losing My Soul, or maybe just a part of it. (laughs) And I would say it's poetic that his episode should follow Frederick Wiseman's episode, because Frederick Wiseman actually sort of appears in his story that's true kind of kicks off his story in some ways and uh i'm not going to give anything else uh, away on it but that's kind of by design ben that's why we're doing it because we had frederick wiseman and now we've got bruce van dusen because bruce van dusen kind of one of those people really uh inspired by by frederick and had an incredible career uh, you know uh in some part inspired by him so we're going to have a contest where we're going to give away the book 60 stories about 30 seconds so, Ilya, what should people do if they would like to have their very own copy? And this is an extraordinarily entertaining book if you're interested in the commercial industry, if you just like a whole lot of great entertainment industry anecdotes, if you enjoy our war story episodes, oh, this yeah. is nothing but war stories. Oh, yeah. It's like 60 war stories, and they're fantastic, and there's all kinds of... Uh Oh my God, I, I don't even, we, we get into some of them in the interview, which you're about to hear, but the book is chock full of, of another like 57 of them or something like that. And uh, it, it's a, it's a great read. Even if you don't win the contest, you can get the audiobook version of it uh, over at Audible, um, or, you know, you can also get a hard copy from uh, Amazon. It, it's readily available. What do people need to do if they would like to win a copy of 60 stories about 30 seconds? So the way to enter the contest is this. Go to our Facebook page. On the Facebook page, which is at Cinepod, C-I-N-E-P-O-D, the Cinematography Podcast will come up. And once you're there on our Facebook page, there will be a post, probably right near the top, uh, all about the Bruce Van Dusen episode and probably will mention the uh, the book giveaway. Comment. Comment there. Uh, share it if you, if you like. But please at least comment. Uh, we're going to pick one of those comments at random and uh, that person's going to win the book. So... And if you haven't done it already, like our page on Facebook. Costs you nothing, really helps us. Exactly. Having having a little bit of like social credibility on Facebook is wonderful. We're really making some strides on Instagram. We've now got several thousand, but I think we're still still pretty lacking on Facebook. We could use a few more likes. We can use some love on Facebook. So please give us some love and uh, hopefully uh, win, a, win a great book. You'll love reading it. It'll uh, keep you busy while you're not with your family over the holidays, hopefully, because of COVID. Which brings me to our George Foyt Close Focus segment tonight. Yes, Ben Rock, director, producer, podcaster. <laughs> tell, me about the, uh, tell me about the Close Focus today. <laughs> sure thing, Ilya Friedman, proprietor of Hot Rod Cameras and 
camera technologist. Today's close focus is all about the Tom Cruise rant. How could we not talk about the Tom Cruise rant? What rant and are you talking about? So, you know, every now and then we get uh, an audio spill from a from a movie set. You know, there was the famous that, one. That's never happened before. There was the famous one with Christian Bale some time ago. Oh, sure. Okay. Um, there, there, there's that was, one. Yeah. That, that, that might have gotten a little bit of play. Every now and then we get we get a little glimpse behind the curtain of what goes on at the highest level. It's and, a beaded uh, curtain. We, we've got a pretty good view of it. And this week, I believe it was the British uh, tabloid The Sun was leaked audio of Tom Cruise, uh, no other way to describe it, going off on an F-bomb loaded mm. rant to the crew. And, and it was all about what, what had happened, I guess, was he had personally, I believe, purchased a boat that the crew could basically stay on like a luxury cruise while they were filming Mission Impossible 7. And somehow in Italy, 12 crew members came down with COVID-19. And they kept going and marshaled on and were doing all the COVID-19 compliance stuff. And on set, he saw people standing too close to each other. I guess in this particular instance, it was two people at a computer monitor standing less than two meters apart, which to us filthy Americans is six feet. And, and he lost it at them. And I have to say... This is no endorsement of anything Tom Cruise believes in or anything. I support Tom Cruise in this rant. A hundred percent, 150 percent. Listening to his anger at people who were not being COVID compliant echoes how I feel when people act like COVID is not a big deal. And I don't know what was going on on that set exactly, except people standing a little too close to each other. But for God's sakes, uh, we can't all go back to life until we take care of this thing. And here is Tom Cruise offering people, because he's one of the producers on the movie, an opportunity to work on a super high-end Hollywood blockbuster kind of movie. And people were acting on set in a uh, reckless manner, shall we say. How did you feel when you first heard it? Or have you actually heard the tape? I have heard it. I, I was just making a, a joke before, but yeah, I thought that I'm also, I think I'm also on Tom Cruise's side about this as, as much as I don't think that there's a lot of place in the world for ranting and, and, and raving on uh, something as inconsequential as, you know, a couple hundred million dollar movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, really, why, why are we getting so worked up about this? But Tom's not getting worked up about the movie. He's getting worked up about health and he's getting worked up about the larger economic issues, because, of course, if that production is shut down, uh, if a whole bunch of people uh, get sick, if people die, that completely changes the whole landscape. And when you're trying to live inside the bubble and you're trying to make sure that there is no possibility of infection for anyone and there's people who are I mean, it's like there's force of habit for a lot of stuff. But but at least at this moment in time, you have to be really, really conscious. And uh, and for a second, when I was listening to that recording, I thought that Tom Cruise was just doing his Les Grossman from Tropic Thunder. So I, I really, <laughs> I, for a second, I was like, oh, this is going to be like an April Fool's type of thing. That's but funny. No, no. no, it, it, no. And he, yeah, he, he makes really good points. And uh, frankly, uh, I understand he can be a little intense and high strung. And in this situation, it's pretty justified, pretty justified when we're talking about literally people's lives and uh, California right now. Now, I heard described as the epicenter of uh, of the current you oh, know, COVID. And lucky us, too, by the way. California is the epicenter of the world's COVID-19. Like, you know, we are the hot zone right now. We are. And Los Angeles, where you and I both live, is the hottest part of the hot zone. Like, there are more cases of it here. And, uh, you know, I remember in in May and June when their numbers were like 12, 15, 16,000 a day, that seemed horrific. And this last week, every day was like between 30 and 60,000. 
new uh, cases yeah, of COVID-19. Fr- Friday was 53,000. And, and I know that they're doctoring the numbers in Florida because I'm sure Florida would also be bad, but they, they, the, the number that they're being doctored is what I understand because uh, the person who was responsible for it got fired. And so they kind of yeah. say whatever it is. So there might be other places that are as bad, but at least of, of people who are actually reporting numbers right now. Yeah, uh, we're the worst. We, we have the distinct. We're pretty honor bad. Being... I'm afraid to I'm afraid to set foot outside. I mean, literally, yeah. I, I walk my son around my neighborhood and, uh, you know, I, I, I went to Starbucks the other day and went through a drive through contact free Starbucks and was like, what am I doing? Am I crazy? What's my problem? And yeah. uh, and oh, yeah. I don't intend to go anywhere for a minute. But I f- and Tom Cruise, if you listen to the rent, is talking about basically if his his crew that is trying to be kind of the gold standard in how to continue making movies under these circumstances, if they break down, it's gonna sc- it's gonna send a ripple effect and, and and in fact a chilling effect here in Los Angeles where more productions will be shut down. People will be like, no, you just can't do it. And it really is very very hard and requires. A great deal of discipline and you know nobody wants to be on a film set wearing a face shield and a and an n95 mask but it really is what's going to have to happen you know until we all get vaccinated you know which hopefully will be within the next several months but it's got to be like this and i felt like when i heard tom cruise's uh just this wave of bile coming out from him about how fucked up it is that people aren't taking this seriously it sounded like kind of my inner voice like i was like i'm so glad that somebody who's got a big voice and a position in the world and has that kind of power is actually trying to do the right thing and also trying to figure out how to continue doing what he does and what we all want to be doing under these god-awful circumstances and save the lives of people who are, I'm assuming, uh, getting in line. And I do think that there's almost no reason ever to yell on a set except to be heard from a great distance unless you don't have a walkie. But I feel like this is one of those circumstances where it's like he's basically saying, you you have to stop doing this or you're out. If you don't stop misbehaving in this way, you're out. And he's I think he's so right. And I hope that this was heard by people in other industries. I hope this was heard by every producer because I keep hearing stories about people being super lax about stuff. So I want to know that everyone's getting the the message that this is real, this is deadly, and and uh, and it's not just like, hey man, don't tell me what to do. It's like this is public health stuff that that is a worldwide issue. I appreciate Tom Cruise. I think he comes out on meaningful things and does uh, say things purposely. And even when uh, something, I'm sure this was not purposeful and did not intend for it to be released. But uh, you know, I, I think I really think his heart's in the right right spot. Even if he is, maybe it's not his proudest moment. Uh, I remember that he took a stand about the stupid smooth motion mode that all these people's television sets come in and uh you know that that was very well planned but it was like hey and COVID 19 is at least as important as smooth scan (laughs) you know he's done uh i appreciate that he actually comes out and he does some things and i i wouldn't all i was going to say is that based on this leak now and based on the way he's done other sort of things where he's come out and made psa type of announcements i think that we will see him do one because of this, I think that he's going to come out and do something, do something because of it. I think that that's that's the way that he's going to feel like he saves face. That's the way he feels like he's going to hit the, the message home. He's going to come out and I would not be surprised if he makes fun of himself. But uh, uh, I think that he will come out and do something now because of it. So, listeners, what did you think of the Tom Cruise uh, situation rant? speech whatever you want to call it uh let us know on on facebook while you're on facebook entering the bruce van dusen thing uh let us know what you think all right so let's get to the interview with bruce van dusen 
The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, I'm sitting down with Bruce Van Dusen and uh, also uh, co-host uh, Ben Rock here today. Yo. Bruce, thank you so much for being on The Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for having me. I look forward to getting the chance to chat with everybody today. Uh, you are a director and also an author or a commercial director who suddenly decided to become an author. I think those were your own words. I want to dive right in because it's a really fantastic book that you've written all about your career and uh, your biography. And really, there's a certain, I'm going to say psychosis that only exists on set. And it's a very specific type of psychosis that exists on a commercial set. It's not the same as any other kind of set out there. And you have captured that in a way I've never read in any other book before. Can you tell me, uh, I mean, really, uh, some people would say, like, you know, you, you blow up your career by by talking about the clients, that the, the, the way that you talk about them. But there is nothing but truth in every single page. I've worked on commercials. Ben's worked on commercials. Alana's worked on commercials, our, our producer. Everyone who's ever worked on a commercial will find so much truth in this book. They will know that this is a hundred percent real. These are not made up stories. This is like, this is not embellishment. This is how it goes. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the psychosis of commercials? It's exactly right. I, people say, what did you want to do? What were you thinking about doing when you were in college? And I said, you know, really the first thing I wanted to do was be a preschool teacher. And they said, uh, how does that relate to becoming a commercial director? And I said, perfectly, because you're managing a lot of people who have, are behaviorally retarded and they're in a high stress <laughs> situation. I think the, um, you know, I tried to not a hundred percent shoot myself in the foot with every one of the stories. I'm really glad that you guys felt that they were real. And, and, um, I mean, that's, that's part of deciding that you're going to write a memoir that goes a little bit behind the scenes. You have that, everybody says that, and very few do it, I think, because they're scared. I started doing this, Ilya, when I was 23 years old. And, you know, I'm in my mid-60s now. A normal commercial director has a career, if it really works out for him or her, maybe 15 years. So I've overstayed my welcome by multiple decades. The idea that I can still be doing this, and I you know, I shot a commercial last week. It is a nutty, very nutty thing. The defense I would give, or the reason I would say that your analysis needs to be understood exactly in, in what the little niche is, is that unlike a movie or a television show or a documentary, you're coming together to create a little film in a very, very tight amount of time. And, you know, even a big commercial you're going to work on for seven or eight days. I think the longest shoot I ever did was 10 days long, multiple commercials. But for the most part, these people are coming together and they have to gel instantly. And then they have to come out at the end of the day with a product that's going to be usable. And the product is so completely different in the mind's eye of the person who's paying for it than it is in the mind's eye of the people who are making it. It's almost crazy because you're trying to make these little films and there's a man or a woman sitting at a monitor going, can we see more of the macaroni box? And yes, okay, we can, we can. But part of the reason you're trying to get people to pay attention is they're not really looking at your fucking macaroni box. They're looking at what else is going around. We're, we're trying to keep them, we're trying to hoodwink them and to pay attention. So it is a nutty environment. And certainly the stories that I, I tell would speak to the fact that it often does not bring out the best in either the people who are paying for it 
or the people who were working on it, or, you know, in my case, me, who <laughs> I, I did a lot of, uh, I don't know how I, how, I, how I kept it going for as long as I did, because, uh, you know, the scuttlebutt on me was that I was, I was pretty challenging. And I finally got a little better behaved as I got older. I, I, I think some of it is I just got tired. So it was easier to roll along. I want to bring up a particular uh, deodorant commercial that you that you talk about in the book, and I, I think it, it's a wonderful. Uh, have, by the way, have we said the name of the book yet? Okay. It's called Sixty Stories About Thirty Seconds. It's um, a great, and title. then it has a very very long thing about how I became a pretty big commercial director. Uh, it goes on and on and on. But Sixty Stories About Thirty Seconds, I think, is should be such that particularly people in the filmmaking world would kind of understand what it was about. I will say that if I talk to somebody, some of the younger people in my office, guys, and I say 30 seconds, they look at me like, what are you talking about? Because they have no idea that the, a lot of that's the, con the length of the content they're working on, because so much of it is on the web or other things where they're not looking like that. So they go 30, you know, so it, may, it just makes me feel like a fucking geriatric, but I... <laughs> <laughs> it's a catchy title. I think uh, everyone probably over the age of about 38 right now feels that way. So. Yeah. <laughs> you tell a story in the book about working on a deodorant commercial. And for me, I felt like it was a perfect analogy and a perfect encapsulation of the thing that if anyone spent any time on set on a commercial working with actors and also having the agency present is something that I think everyone everyone there has experienced at least once. And you do such a great job of capturing it. I'm just going to read this little portion of it where an actress is supposed to notice that she's perspiring and and then have a reaction to it. And, and you, you write, the actress does a great job of looking surprised when she notices her damp underarm. As is normal in advertising, a subtle reaction isn't what the client wants. They're thinking she should ha look crestfallen when she sees the stain. Or maybe we can try shocked. How about humiliated? What they'd really be happy with <laughs> is if they had the young woman threaten to kill herself after checking the stain. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as I shoot more takes, I have her gradually up amp up her reactions, and in the end, exaggerating everything so much, I know they will never use it. We love that last take. Let's move on. Anyway, that 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 is so true, and I can't. I can tell you, so many actors have been in that exact position too, where they know that this take will never be used. It's it's comical. They're they're now behaving like a weird caricature clown of a human being for the reaction. And what's I think even more stunning is when we see those takes actually make it onto the screen. Uh, can you uh, tell us anything about like this sort of like human reaction uh, and this uh, microcosm that is the the commercial set where uh, basically stuff like this happens all the time that everyone kind of loses sanity for a moment and decides that that's the best the best course of action um i think that what occurs is the result of you're bringing a lot of people onto a film set which is an alien environment to them and because they're writing the check they are given some sort of right to participate or approve of what's happening. They have no idea how these takes will look when they're cut together. They have no idea how, what a reaction shot will look like when it's paired with something else. But because they are there on that day and they are paying, they are fully, fully entitled in their minds, in their own minds, to tell you how to light, to tell you how to block, to tell you how to talk to the actors, 
to tell you what they think of line readings, things like this. So it makes it makes for a very challenging thing. I found, as, as you see in one story, it took me a while to learn how to protect the actors because it took me a while to realize that what I really needed to understand was at the end of the day, the only thing that was important was what was happening in front of the camera. Didn't matter what was happening on the dolly with me yelling at somebody or bad mouthing somebody. Didn't matter what was happening with the agency. It was mat what mattered was in front of the camera. And I learned that it was a given that as a day would go on, the agency and the client would make more and worse suggestions so that they would wind up taking whatever good and actually making it shitty. That was not their intent, but that was their, that was the outcome. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I learned to do, it took me about six, seven years to learn to do it. It's one of the stories in the book is I was shooting a, a, a laxative commercial and I'm working with a Broadway, uh, a woman who's just won the Tony, incredibly talented woman. And she's taken a monologue about constipation and she's just made it amazing. So we shoot about 15 takes and I think, yeah, you know, this is great. We're done. And the writer suddenly is appears next to me and I, he looks very unhappy. And I said, what was the problem? He goes, she doesn't get it. I said, she doesn't get what? He said, she doesn't get peristalsis. Peristalsis is a scientific term for taking a dump. Mm. So I said, oh, no, 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 no. She definitely gets that. She seriously gets that. I know she does. He goes, no, she's not getting that. I don't hear it in her voice. And I said, uh, you know, I, I don't think you can be serious. But I said, what do you want to do about that? He said, somebody's got to explain peristalsis to her. What? I said, well, yeah. So I said, well, listen, that's not going to be me. And he goes, fine, I'll talk to the actress. So the guy goes over and spends his five minutes of importance embarrassing himself. I go over to the actress and I say, I'm really sorry. And she won't even make eye contact with me. We do the, we finish it. Of course, the writer thinks everything's better because he's made this important contribution. Yeah. But what I learned was that I needed to protect the actors because that was going to happen every time. Even as I got to be more and more successful and people gave me a lot more freedom. In fact, sometimes total freedom, there was still always a point in the day when something dumb would happen. Otherwise, I'd have no fucking book. <laughs> well, it was all worth it. <laughs> so I learned that the trick was I'd listened and absorbed to what, whatever the, the nonsense was. I'd nod my head. I'd go to the sound man and I would say to him, turn off the mics so that they can't hear anything over in Video Village or anywhere else. And I would go over to the actor, the actress, and I would say, you've done great. I think we're done. The thing is now what we have to do is this thing called advertising. And that will make no sense to you. I'm gonna say things that you'll go, that doesn't make any sense compared to the thing you just told me. It will make no sense to me either, but it's the people who do advertising trying to be important and contribute. So you just got to roll with me for a, it's going to take 10 minutes and then we're going to be done. Then I'd walk back to the camera, turn on the microphone, boom. You know, I'd say, do it standing on your head. Now do it crying, you know, do it with your, your finger in your ear and the boom, 10 takes later, we're done. But it was a matter of being able to realize that it was just a lock. It was a given that somebody was going to say something and it wasn't going to be very smart, but it wasn't my job to 
yell at them. I spent a lot of, t- I would spend a lot of time yelling at them. You know, I would say things like, all right, fine, we'll do it your way. And then we'll do it the right way. This was not advancing my career. Yeah. And, you know, so I, and I, I figured I needed to see if I could make it a career in well, any see, event. Bruce, let's, 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 uh, I think that's a wonderful segue. Let's kind of take it back to the early days, to the, to the beginning of your uh, professional career. You spent a long time in, in your book and in, in proper memoir fashion covering uh, the early days. And the early days are, are, are really, really fun to read. Take us back to 23 year old version of yourself, uh, just trying to make it in the world, just starting out. Well, I had gone to film school. Um, I'd had this come to Jesus moment where I thought I was going to go off into the music business and I didn't do that. And I went to film school, which I was equally interested in. I'd been doing, been making little movies since sort of elementary school. But what I wanted to do was make documentaries. And, you know, I'm in film school, so I'm surrounded by all these people who call themselves documentarians. What I didn't realize was documentarian meant flat broke person who has not made a film in 10 years. They don't make that part of the curriculum. So I was working, I had an internship at a little TV station. I was gonna move to New York to make documentaries. I have no sense of the rules. I've never seemingly had much sense of the rules. This is 1975, I look in the phone book and a guy who I think is like the greatest documentary guy in the world, Frederick Wiseman is in the white pages. So I call him up. I figure he's never gonna get on the phone, you know, but maybe he'll call me back. Woman answers the phone, asks my name. 10 seconds later, a male voice, Wiseman. I am not prepared for this, but I fumfer out basically the question, how do I grow up to be you? (laughs) And he says, have you ever made a documentary before? I said, kind of, I, I work at a TV station. And he said, so they paid for it, right? And I said, yeah. He said, that'll never happen again. I said, what do you mean? He said, no one will willingly give you money to make a film. You're going to have to go find money. He said, I spend 90% of my time looking for money and 10% of the time making a film. Jesus, when that call ended, I I completely changed my approach to what I was going to do for a living, which meant I was going to do anything that allowed me to get a job somehow related to film. So I moved to New York and uh, because my roommate didn't know how to drive a clutch, he called me at breakfast because he'd been hired to work on a commercial. I was still unemployed. He called, he said, do you know how to drive a, a stick shift? I said, yeah, I'm a guy. And, and he said, I don't. And I said, well, he said, come down. So I went and replaced him on a commercial. Didn't know this existed. Took the props to the set and watched this unbelievable set being built and Gordon Willis is lighting it Whoa. And, and Mel Bourne is designing it. And I'm going, wait a second, what the hell is this business? And the end of the story is, this makes me sound like a real mercenary. It was I was leaving after the production manager told me he would no longer need my services. I walked past the director's office and this is what I hear him saying into the phone. He goes, I want the, the uh, Maserati brought around at 4.30. Pause. No, the gray one. Whoa. And I thought, there something is happening in this industry that I don't really understand. So then I, I got a job as a PA again, and then I still wanted to make movies. But I once I saw that it was kind of legit, and all these big movie guys were making commercials to make a living, I thought, well, you know, 
I could try that. So I did anything to uh, make my way into it. I kind of gave up documentaries pretty quick, sold it down the river, and then I didn't make one for another 40 years. But I then, I, I did get to make one 10 years ago. Were you ever able to tell Frederick Wiseman the story yourself? Uh, no, it's funny. I went to see a, a big lecture of his at the Museum of Modern Art, and I wanted to go back with the people who had, had brought me to this to tell him this story. And then I thought, you know, it would kind of be terrible because here was, you know, he now has a MacArthur and he's got a deal with PBS and he's, you know, he makes these beautiful films, makes one every couple of years. And I'm going to tell him that his 10 minute conversation meant I never <laughs> made a documentary. So he'd be like, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. He'd be like, thanks. I, I, what I didn't need was any competition. So I appreciate it. Yeah, maybe that was his point. Maybe it was his trick. <laughs> I know we're making all, all of this sound so glamorous, but in the early days, uh, and in the book you have a chapter called I Will Not Be Undersold, and you talk about those early rough days in the crime-ridden East Village and trying to make your way through it. You, you don't happen to have your a copy of your book in front of you right now, do you, or a PDF? I do, I do. Would, would you mind reading uh, like a paragraph or so out of uh, page 61 here, uh, where you talk about you're in a year-long rut of shooting crap? <laughs> yeah, this is, as you now have probably determined, I tried to write in my own, in my speaking voice, which is some of my, my friends and my horrified children have said, gee, dad, you, you write just like you talk. And I said, isn't that, that's, that's, that's an author having a voice. They go, maybe. I, I think it's, it's I think quite it's readable. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very readable and it's super relatable to anyone who's overworked in production, who've, who's worked on crew, who's worked on set, who's been involved in some crazy part of this business. But like, I'm asking you to, to read this, this portion because I think what you're talking about is so relatable for so many people because it's always the overnight success story 20 years in the making and all through this chapter basically where you talk about uh, you know selling yourself short and trying to get you know get the jobs because you could be less expensive but it's it's the rut it's the rat race it's you know you're 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 f making your way you're you're building up your skills but you're completely aware of exactly what's going on and i think that you have encapsulated it beautifully here because you know that what you're doing is uh in some ways a fool's errand you have to make something that is terrible into something great they will take all the credit and if and if you don't uh they will give you all the blame yeah the uh, chapter's called i will not be undersold and this is probably now 1981. So I've been doing it for a little bit. So I'm back working on the stages at Mother's. It's cheap. And since most of the stuff I'm shooting is low budget, I can't afford the nicer stages. The agencies that are hiring me understand that my unbeatable low prices come with some concessions. One being dirty beat up stages in the heart of the crime ridden East Village. The producers who have heroin problems love it though. I'm in a year-long rut of shooting crap. Actually, it's been a five-year rut, and little do I know that it's going to last another 10 years before something changes. There is an upside. Directing crappy commercials forces you to be creative. Every part of what the agency hands you sucks, so you have to figure out a way to make it better. Because in the Russian firing squad logic of advertising, if you don't, they'll blame you for the piece of shit they wind up with. Not that you wrote a word of it or came up with any of the settings. Avoiding those bullets is forcing me to get much better at my craft. 
So there's that. I, I think that's I think that you summarize so many people's life experience in production and the rat race in trying to get somewhere in just the, the these paragraphs right here. That's like it feels like humble beginnings that are not beginnings that last. Uh, and and in, in your case here, you say, like, you know, another 10 years of your life, even though it's it's really will be 11. And you kind of wish that you you move on from that point. And the good news is, is that y- you do move on to that point from that point and you get married, you have children uh, or you have a child and stuff. I, I, I will tell you that it seems to me that commercials are so ingrained in your life and your being at this point that almost everything, as you describe in the book, relates to it. And especially when you get to the the birth of your your first child you're actually shooting a commercial while your wife's in labor uh, <laughs> can, can you can you talk a little bit about just the mental jujitsu balancing act that you have to do of directing a commercial while uh, your wife is having contractions somewhere not near you yeah it was probably not my finest hour i was able to rationalize it as i think men, particularly male directors, do tremendous amounts of rationalizing in how they screw up other people's lives, particularly their family members. My first wife was an actress, so she kind of understood this. It was not coming out of left field. What was coming out of left field is that everything kind of happened at once, so that she went into labor on a day that I was shooting. I mean, that's it couldn't have been the day before, it couldn't have been the day after. Of course, it has to be on the day we're shooting. And it also happens to be, 36 years ago yesterday, happens to be Yom Kippur. So our nice Jewish OBGYN meets us at the hospital, and he says, uh, yeah, you're going to have this kid. And instead of jumping up and down for joy, you know, my question was, when? He said, what do you mean, when? I said, like, when are we going to have this kid? Like, and in two hours? Or he said, no, 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 it's the first baby. So this isn't going to happen until late in the afternoon. In fact, I'm leaving to go to services. So, so my wife was a little shocked, but I thought, okay, there's my opening. I said, I am, I'm supposed to go shoot a commercial today. Can I do that? He said, how long does that take? I said, I can get this done in like four hours. He said, oh, yeah. Yeah, no problem, because my rabbi is very old. It's going to t- it, it, the service <laughs> drags on and I'm not going to be back for at least six hours. So Blanche and I walk out onto the street and she's pretty good natured about it. And I head off to the stage and we're going to be in touch for cell phones. So we've got a dedicated phone. And as you can expect, it just doesn't go that smoothly. The first big problem is that it's I'm doing a job that's kind of like reminds me of the taking of Pelham 123. I'm shooting for uh, Japan Airlines. So the client is maybe 15 Japanese people. And I can't tell if they speak English or understand English. They always have that very attentive look on their face and they look like they're really connected, but I just am not, I'm not sure what's happening. Uh, the second problem is that the person we've cast is a woman, a very beautiful Japanese American woman. Problem is she has a problem with her skull. And by that, I mean, in the middle of the, about the 20th take, one of her ears suddenly pops out and is at right angles to her head. At which point I'm looking through the camera and I, first I just think something's, something's odd here. Did, and I thought, oh, I'm so nervous. You know, I'm having like retina detachment or something. No, the makeup guy is suddenly at my shoulder and he says, uh, give me two minutes, I'll fix that. And I said, fix what? He said, I glued her ears to her, her head because she has gigantic ears 
which you know stick out as if you were you, you know trying to sail across the Atlantic on Contiki and running with the wind. Huge. He oh, said, man. "Just give me five minutes." So he takes this industrial glue, goes out, just hand clamps her head. Of course, in the middle of this, my producer comes over and says, your wife is on the phone. And I thought she was going to call just, you know, being nice. What's happened now is that labor is increased. Everything's going fast. This woman's ears are popping out. The Japanese oh. people, I can't tell whether they understand what's happening or not. Oh, man, it was a bad day. So we eventually got the commercial done in about four hours. I never, the, the client, I never heard from them again. I'm sure they just thought I, I didn't care about them because I just shook their hands and ran out the door. Never told them why I was in such a hurry. And I did get to the, uh, back to the hospital before the OBGYN. But uh, when I ran in, because my, my wife was already up on the delivery floor, they, the, the intern literally has her legs crossed because there's no OBGYN there and there's no husband there. And I said, why, do you, why are you sitting like this? And she said, they're trying to keep me keep the baby in until someone shows up. I said, wow, wow. So I, you know, as the chapter ends, I said, I'll never, ever shoot again on a day when I'm having a kid, Oof. which technically was true, but it was, I was by, by 24 hours in, e in each of the other two kids' cases. Things were a little kooky. But you know what? I was in my defense, because I feel like I have to defend myself. In my defense, I was running a small business. I was a, a one man, I, you know, I was a single director company. I had four people working for me. You know, I was working, but I wasn't making a ton of money. I'd taken on a job. I, was, I needed every job I could get. And what was I going to do? Go up to the set and say, I can't shoot your job and I don't have another director who come in and replace me. I didn't have an alternative. So um, I felt like the responsible thing to do was to go and shoot the commercial as quickly as I could and hope that I'd get back in time to be there when my kid was born, which I did. But you do, when you're running a, a one director company, it's very challenging like that because your personal life cannot really interrupt anything. You know, you join a bigger company. I didn't, I did everything backwards. You know, I joined another company when I was, after I'd had my own company for like 18, 19 years. God, it was so nice. You know, you did, if, if I couldn't do it well, they could slide another person in. It was, oh, Jesus. I thought, what a fucking moron I was to do it the the other, this other way, I should have waited to go out on my own until I'd learned how to do this in a big context. But I couldn't because no one would hire me. I was 23 years old. I didn't know anything. So I had to start my own company. Yeah. No, nobody ever really teaches you that. No one ever teaches you the, uh, hey, all the stuff you, that you don't know. You don't have a choice really to do it any other way, but, uh, you know, trial by fire. And, and clearly... Uh, it it eventually worked out. Um, if you could put into words what you feel like was sort of the nice you know, overnight success story, you know, twenty years in the making uh, moment for you, the moment where everything sort of shifted, that that pivot. What job would you say that was? What what totally uh, changed changed your life uh, for the better? I I shot a job. I was getting known for shooting commercials that had emotional impact. Oftentimes they were sixties, so they could be for a bank or they could be for a hospital, or they could be for a phone company. They could even be for Kellogg's or somebody. But I, was, I found that I was good at that and I enjoyed that. So when I moved into the big company, 
I started to do a little bit more of it because they were just more effective salespeople. And I got a job shooting a campaign for New York Telephone, which is now Verizon. And the agency had no idea that they'd written a great commercial. This was always an amazing part of advertising to me is that you would hear them try to sell you a really shitty commercial. And then when they'd have a diamond in the rough, they wouldn't know it. So this commercial was about, let's go back before cell phones, but it's, this was commercial about uh, the idea that you could have multiple people on a call. So the story was that there were these three brothers and two of them had stayed close, but there was a black sheep who had just not spoken to one of them for 10 years. And the commercial starts with two of the brothers talking on the phone and you sh I'm cutting back and forth between their, their, the different houses that they live in. And then the one who hates the younger one makes some disparaging comment about him, you know, says Louis is still a, he's a lazy fuck. And then suddenly Louis starts screaming and Louis has been on the phone call the whole time. So suddenly it becomes this three way screaming match, but at the end of it, they kind of resolve agency fought me on everything. They, I said, it'd really be probably better if we did this with either Italian guys or Jewish guys. So we bring a little flavor to this because the Goyim are not going to, they're not going to really make this fly. I don't know. I'm uncomfortable with ethnic people. So in any event, we got the Italian guys and they, I knew they'd hired a terrible editor. So as I often did in those days, I would go back and edit my own commercial and show it to them. And that resulted in the agency producer calling my boss, really, my, my executive producer, and saying, what the fuck is your director doing? He sent us a cut of this commercial. We didn't ask him for that. He's the director. We, we don't need his input. So it was terrible. In any event, the editor did his shit job. They went and said, oh, here's this version the director did. Um, and then they used that. And that commercial became famous enough that I started flying all over the world shooting telephone commercials. I went from there to doing this campaign in Canada. I kind of, kind of fed me for five years. And then I would go to Italy to do Telecom Italia. Then I'd go to California to do Bell. And then I'd go to Bell, Pennsylvania. Phone companies all wanted to tell stories. And phone companies were doing stuff about people connecting. So suddenly I was able to do interesting work. And, um, you know, I'd go into meetings and I'd have this foul mouth and, you know, be making stupid jokes. And they'd, I think they would freak out because they'd say, this guy couldn't possibly be somebody who's going to do this kind of dramatic work. <laughs> but um, I did. And I c have continued to do it. I did a commercial for, uh, uh, is for the Lincoln Project 10 days ago. And it's a spot that's unlike any of their stuff. And it's a mother talking to a kid. I went online to look at it with my with the writer. We'd, we'd done it as a volunteer project for them. And you'll go watch it. It's called Good. It's been sh watched about 700,000 times in five days. Wow. And uh, most of the comments are people talking about, I cannot believe I'm weeping at the end of this. And I thought, oh, I did my job. I did my, and I thought, I, you know, I haven't totally lost my chops. <laughs> so... Well, I mean, if anything, you get better at that kind of stuff. But I'm really interested in uh, your approach to working with actors because, you know, I mean, there's traditions upon traditions of, you know, Meisner technique and whatnot with, in terms of working with actors in full-length plays, in full-length movies. What do you think, what's the best advice you could give or the best advice you were given about how to work with actors in something that's such a short form? 
Uh, it's a very good question, bec particularly because of the, the end part of it, because it's a short form. You have no real time to get to know these people. You can't kind of spend the first two days like you do on a movie, oftentimes playing with scenes that don't matter as much. I found that the easiest way to deal with actors was to cast the right actors. Mm -hmm. It's really apparent who's right for a particular part. And oftentimes, particularly in things like TV or movies, you you know, people say, Jesus, why did they put X in that role? And you go, well, because the person is famous or whatever else. Commercials, you're not really dealing with that. You're just really looking for the best performers. But I would, I would try to cast well, because then as soon as I put the people in front of the camera, everything was great. I didn't have to do much. I could make tiny little nuanced changes. But I think one of the ways that I got those performances was not about how I directed them, it was because of what I would say to them as soon as work would start. I would go find actors in the morning down in makeup on location or on a stage. And I usually had met them at a callback, but you know, I'd spent maybe five minutes with them. And I would ask them if they had everything that they wanted. Do you have any, everything you want to drink? Do you have a phone charger? Is everything, everybody looking after you? And they'd say, yeah. And I'd say, well, you know what? We're going to have fun today because it's going to be the easiest thing you've ever done. And the, you're going to have fun with it. We're going to go quickly. You're going to be home for dinner. And I said, the best, the thing you have to remember today is it's impossible for you to make a mistake. And they would look at me like, what? And I'd say, I, I really mean it. it. If you blow a line, it doesn't matter because the type of work I do, I tend to like mistakes. If you don't hit a mark, I'm never really looking at marks. We're always going to correct for that. Everything you do today is going to be good. I'm going to give you a little bit of guidance here and there. I'm going to probably change my mind a little bit and ask you to try different things. But everything you do today is good because you're a really good actor. These actors would walk on set with 100% confidence and I could get them to do anything because they thought, oh, this guy's looking after me. You know, and mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to say to them, I'd watch some director's work, you know, I'd go to visit somebody on a set and I'd watch more than one director whose version of directing at the end of one take is to say again. Yeah. And then I'd hear that again and I'd go, are you fucking kidding me? That's what you're going to do again. Um, and then there were others who were, you know, creepy, who were like wanting to be therapists with these people. It's a commercial, calm down. They don't, they don't need therapy for a day. And then there are, were plenty who were just uh, people who took pictures they didn't know how to direct actors, so they just say, stand there. I've, I had a lot of respect for actors once I, once I realized how dependent I was on them, and I realized they were, gonna, they were more important, really, than me because they were in front of the camera. So I had to figure out a way to let them do the best that they could. I don't think it's really a trick, but it was maybe it qualifies as a method. You know, it was a way to, it was kind of a through line, such that, you know, my makeup person who worked with me for 40 years, she'd see me walk into the makeup room and she'd just sort of start smirking because she'd say, oh, this is where you do this bullshit about you can't make a mistake. <laughs> and I go, calm yourself. How long have you been working as a makeup person for me? She'd go, 40 years. I said, so shut up. It works. <laughs> Well, it, I mean, it's I mean, like when you're making a feature or a TV series, you do have time to create rapport with an actor, but you might only work on a commercial. You might only work with them one day ever in the whole in your whole life. 
So that actually is a really smart idea in terms of, you know, kind of creating at least creating that trust, because, you know, if they go in afraid that they're going to fuck everything up, then, you know, then you're going to have a harder time getting a good performance out of them. So what you're telling what you're doing is taking performance anxiety away from it and even just kind of letting them know that you're the kind of person who cares about them and makes it important because like you say there are tons of directors who just don't even know how to talk to actors or who sort of like see the actors as not an adversary but just as like another tool like you're like you're you're a scrim you're a you're a boom pole you're not really a person and uh you know those people have to go up there and look fresh as a daisy you know you do that stuff 200 times uh in looking at your book one of the things i don't have a, a commercial directing career anything like yours but i've done some work for agencies and I immediately started getting some great pieces of advice. And you already talked about it a little bit, but like that feeling of when you've got it, you know, I'm happy with this take. And then you have to kind of look at the agency and go, eh? And then they kind of work whatever their magic is. In your book, there's kind of a palpable sense of, of frustration with that. How have you made peace with that? Because, because you have a career with such amazing longevity, I can only imagine that you, know, you can't go through life like angry at the same people all the time. And, and every agency is kind of like that. So how do you make peace with that? I was very lucky to get to a point, and I, I kind of tried to make it part of my business plan because I, it, it's so difficult to get hired in this business, it's so difficult to get a job that I thought once I get a job with a group of people, and if they're nice, it's going to be a lot easier to have them hire me back. And if I work for them more than once, maybe three times, four times, then they're going to wind up trusting me more. There's going to be much less anxiety on the set. And there's going to be a lot more confidence on their part to just let me do the job they've hired me to do, which is direct the commercial. So, you know, by the time I was 40, I was shooting a tremendous number of commercials a year, but I was shooting them for probably 10 clients who would come back seven times a year each. So everybody knew each other. Everybody knew what the drill was. Um, there was there was just more confidence, and that also caused me to probably behave better because when I, when I'd have to deal with something that was a little stupid, I'd look and think, oh, you know, I was out to dinner with these guys, and they're nice guys, and I'm sure they don't really think, they, you know, it's not them. There's probably some dumb question that's happening back there. I think the thing that totally saved a lot of directors is cell phones. Because now I fucking love cell phones. You put everybody over in Video Village, you get a great Wi-Fi connection for them. And between cell phones and computers, after 15 minutes, they're all on Zappos buying fucking shoes, you know, or, <laughs> or something. And so you go, you know, from a distance, you go, how are we looking? I'm ready to move on. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's good. Great. Good. Zappos. Thank God for Zappos. And then they wake up, they like wake up after lunch for about half an hour and they're like, oh, let's do that. You know, you keep them distracted. And I have to remind myself, this is not their world. They're really, they're uncomfortable here. They're, they're kind of there because they have to be. There's the analogy I give in the book is the weird part is that they pay you all this money and then they get in the way of you doing what you do properly or well. It's like if you were flying, get on, you know, a Delta flight from LA to London, and the pilot comes out once you're at about 35,000 feet, and he talks to the guy in 3F and says, look out the window, how do you think the flaps are going? Do you think they're in a good position? And the guy who's in 3F goes, what the fuck do I know about the flaps? 
you go, you go, pilot says, you don't know anything, but you've paid like $14,000 for the seat. So I'm, I'm paying attention to you, to your opinion. <laughs> it's somewhat comparable to how things work on a set where you have to ask their opinion. The best part to realize is that commercials, I think all filmmaking to a certain extent, maybe not documentaries, but so much of filmmaking and television is a very, very dynamic balance of art and commerce. It's a very expensive craft to do. So you're, it's not going to be something like painting where you can just go disappear. And if you fuck it up for a year, it's no skin off anybody's thing. Or if you want to be a still photographer, go take pictures. Oftentimes you got to get 60 people to show up for many days in a row. And it's got to, everything has got to be in focus and it's got to, it's a, it's a challenge. Art and commerce on a, with, with big numbers involved and, and a big scale. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, I always hear stories about uh, people being pigeonholed into uh, specific genres of commercial. Actually, one of our guests on the show, I don't think he told this story on the show, Fraser Bradshaw had uh, had an agency, he's a DP, but he had an agency call him once about uh, uh, they needed to do an ice cream commercial. So he had some ice cream on his reel, but it was vanilla. And they called back and said, do you have any chocolate? And uh, I, I, I always kind of keep that in my mind, but I also like commercials it's like you do kids or you do comedy or you do pretty pictures or whatever uh what what is your experience of that and and how have you either steered into that or or been able to fight away from it um it's it's very much something that happens to commercial directors they get put in little tiny narrow narrow paths so you have to fight that um unless you don't want to fight it there are guys who just want to be comedy directors and look at how incredibly funny commercials are not, you know, it's, <laughs> they are so fucking bad at it. It's amazing. There's a couple guys who are okay, but <laughs> they are so bad at it. Then there are people who I, I work at a company and we have about 15 directors. Four of them are what's called tabletop directors. They just take pictures of food. These are very successful men and women who don't ever deal with actors Personally, I would shoot myself if I. That's had. how I feel. Whenever I hear, I, I've been on a set where they were doing that, and I was like, "This is torture." Oh, it's torture. It is absolute torture. And you think it's crazy? I mean, I think it's crazy when somebody comes up to me and says, "Can she? Can the? Can the actress sound a little more anxious about the the sweat pits?" And they've got five people coming up to this director, going, "See the way that cheese is melting over the edge of the burger? Can we make that like to?" I mean, no, I couldn't do it. But you get that, you get car, people who do cars. I decided that I was going to be more of a generalist because I felt like that was just giving me more opportunities to work. But I primarily was backing into an area which was stories because I wanted to do stories. So that usually meant people were talking, but it, you, it always meant that there was something going on between people in front of the camera. And there seems to have been a market for that, you know, from the beginning of time. So I could do telephone companies and I could do serial companies and I could do cars and I could do emotional stories built around all those different things. I felt like I was not good enough. I f actually, I just felt that my sense of humor was so off base that it was not going to be uh, such that I could turn it into a, a commercial career. I had no mm -hmm. interest in food. Listen, there are people who, who specialize in shooting babies. You know, most of it sounded to me 
as if it was just a, it sounded very dangerous. It sounded like, you know, you somebody knew was going to come in and you'd be done. I felt like if I could make myself seem appropriate for the largest number of ads, that would give me a better chance of having a career as opposed to, you know, five or 10 years at it. Was there, were there any uh, choices that you made along the way to where, where it's like, oh man, if I keep going down this road, I'm, you know, I'm going to only be the telephone commercial guy. Did, did you ever uh, like consciously say, okay, I'm going to choose a different job so I don't get pigeonholed? There was a point in the late 80s, I took this chapter out of the book, where the crew, my crew, would refer to me by the title of the police song, King of Pain, because I would go from Advil to Tylenol to Aleve to Depends to, you know, I, I would shoot every possible product that dealt with a, with a problem. So... I, you know, they were, they were all getting paid and making a fortune following after me. So I didn't learn about it until it had kind of wound down where I, they would go, Hey, King of pain. And I go, what does that mean? And they go, <laughs> Bruce, that's all. Oh, that's all you should. I said, what are you talking about? They go and they'd list the products and I'd go, God, you're right. So that, that precipitated a number of kind of dramatic changes in my life. It made me leave uh, the big company that I had moved into at the, you know, the, the biggest point of my career. Cause I turned to my partner and I said, we got to, I got to start shooting other things. He goes, why do you care? I said, because I'm just shooting crap. I can, I shot a whole year and I have nothing to show for it. He goes, you got money. I said, no, 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 no. I get that. But I kind of want to do this as a job. And the only other skill I've got would be like toll collection. And with easy pass, this is, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> so you had, I, there were times when I had to push and shove and that's a part of a kind of a serious part of the book where I say, you know, I was lucky enough to become a commodity, but I had, I was unlucky because that commodity took me into an area where eventually I was kind of exposed. I was just, being worked and worked in order to shoot. And pretty soon people were not going to want to work with me. And I thought, if I take this into my own hands, maybe I can save it. So I left that company and started another one-man co director company again. And, you know, two, three years later, I started shooting the best stuff that I shot in my life. Oh, wow. It was a risk. And it was a risk to get out of what was kind of lazy. You know, you get into a groove and you do it. It happens. Now, you did go on to make a documentary uh, about the surge in Iraq, but throughout all this time, were you still like thinking about making documentaries or, or making other kinds of uh, film projects other than commercials or were commercials creative and professionally enough fulfilling to you that 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 was that was all you needed? I mean, that was my motivation to go off and make movies. The uh, mm. I'd been lucky enough because I started so young, I was, I had shot a lot by the time I was 29, 30. So I, I went and self-financed this little movie. And uh, I was very lucky to get a couple of actors who, you know, wound up going on to bigger things. The lead actor was Griffin Dunn, who at that oh, wow. point had only done American Werewolf and... Uh, had only done one of my favorite movies ever. Go on. Right. I mean, Griffin is an extraordinarily talented guy and he's had a amazing career, not only as an actor, but as a director, producer. 
Yeah. But, um, I was able to make a movie, went to Sundance, uh, was picked up for distribution. The 10 directors I competed against at Sundance, five of them were other first-time directors. Uh, Jim Jarmusch, oh boy. Spike Lee, Whoa. John Sayles, Adam Brooks, and then the two young men who won the award that year, Joel and Ethan Cohen. So that was, that was my class at Sundance. My, wow. film did, my film did not do that well critically. It kind of did okay with audiences, but when I saw that it was not going to lead immediately to a three-picture deal at, at Columbia, I was right back to commercials. And, I'd, and uh, I stayed there and said, this is where I'm going to live. And I didn't make an, uh, then I, did, I, I, I waited 20 years to make another movie. And then I started making the movies more for my, my head. I was, you know, commercials would get to really be a grind and I could disappear for a month and shoot a movie and it was fun. My office could say, no, he's not available. He's doing this, he's doing that. Um, it was good for my mental health. Plus I was, you know, my life was changing. I was having sort of a chaotic personal life and going off and doing something as weird as a low budget movie was, uh, you know, felt like a cleanse or something. <laughs> but I... I Art and commerce. I never made a movie that was, uh, you know, a breakout hit. I didn't make Blood Simple as my first film. I didn't make Stranger in Paradise. I didn't make something that was going to set me up to uh, go on in that. I mean, one of the other people I hired on my first movie was a, a young woman who was wife of a guy who would work for me periodically, and she'd never edited a movie, so I, that was perfect. And uh, we edited the movie together, mostly me, and it was terrible. And she said give me a couple of weeks and she turned it into a great movie, at least a movie that could get sold and go to Sundance and do well. She did not get another job for four or five years, but then she was hired by a, another first time director who was weird and kooky and had worked in a video store and he'd seen my movie and said, Oh, I really like that movie. I'm going to, I'd like to hire you. And that was Quentin Tarantino. Oh, wow. And Sally Menke went on to cut every film that Quentin Tarantino has ever made. She became his right hand. She passed away eight, nine years ago. She had an accident hiking in the Hollywood Hills. But, uh, you know, I tell a story in the book about how I imagine that I'm sure that the first cut of Reservoir was just as shitty as the first cut of my movie and that Sally very politely said to Quentin, hey, would you mind giving me like a couple of weeks to work on the movie? And he's like, yeah, okay. And then <laughs> she became an essential part of it. I didn't really answer the question, but it was, it was more about, I think I accepted what I was. I had friends who were doing okay in the movie business, but you know, I also had a little bit more stability in a home life until I didn't. I was traveling all the time, but I was also home a lot. And I, you know, I wouldn't go away for six months at a shot on a picture. I didn't have to move to LA. I lived in the suburbs of New York and, you know, I'd split every day, but I've, I felt like I had, I was a, like a normal dad. That wouldn't have happened if I was trying to make movies. I found one of the things that I just started to do anyway, is I used to operate the camera all the time. I would because also since I was doing editing, I had very specific ideas of how I wanted things to look. And I'd started as my own operator. But then as I got into my 40s, I decided that I was just going to work with famous movie DPs. And that was hilarious 
because it took me a while to figure out which were the ones who were really nice and no bullshit and simple. And I, you know, I did a tremendous amount with Vilmos Zygmunt and, you know, people would say, Vilmos Zygmunt is shooting this commercial. I go, yeah. What's so amazing about that? They go, but he's, he's won the Academy. I go, yeah, he's won an Academy Award. You're right. And he's, he was not shooting this week. So he's really happy to be shooting. And, you know, Fred Elms or Declan Quinn wow. or they all shoot commercials when they can. And I found that to be a way of sometimes on certain jobs when people would be, well, you know, we're looking at Tony Scott for this job. Okay. I'm, you may in fact be looking for, at Tony Scott. Well, many times the agencies wanted to talk about, well, who's shooting it? And I, instead of saying me or whatever else, you know, I learned it was pretty funny. I'd go, well, Vilmos Zygmunt's going to shoot it or Conrad Hall's going to shoot it or really? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. If he's not available, I'm going to have Fred Elms do it. <laughs> and the other part that would happen was when feature directors came in to shoot commercials, they would usually fuck it up unless they were shooting a very splashy minute or 90 second spot for somebody like American Express. You know, Scorsese did one of those. It's a weird gig, commercials. You have to learn how to, where to compress. You have to learn the architecture of movement. You have to learn where you're gonna compress time and not make it feel like you've done it. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of an art form in that way, you know? But, but it's still, it's one of those things where a lot of times you're dealing with people who feel like, nah, I can tell him what to do here. I, just as long as you don't do that, if you have to use the services of a colorectal surgeon, don't like advise him about where to make the cut. Uh, you know, the, the industry for advertising and television and everything else has changed uh, drastically in the last couple of years. I mean, less broadcast commercials with the rise of the streamers, with the rise of the services that are not showing commercials. But, you know, of course, there are some that are adding more commercials and including YouTube is now adding extra commercials to the stuff that they've got going on. Uh, how do you feel the industry has shifted or changed? And uh, does the sort of traditional agency model still exist moving forward? Or, or what, do you, what are your thoughts on, on how the landscape's changed? I think that the agency model is lost and adrift. They don't really know what purpose they have, because th what used to be thought of as the at the advertising agency, which would take care of print and radio and television and oftentimes public relations. And everything's been atomized into little teeny areas. There's the your social media person, your digital thing, and your, your list, live events and your pop-up. It, it's nuts. If I was running an agency, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really know what to do. It's affected production companies the hardest because budgets have gone one way down. So it's forced productions to be done for less and less money. Agencies still ask for as much as they used to ask for, but my producer's job is to say, you can't afford that. That's all they say, you can't afford that. But they usually can find some production company that wants to stay in business and that will do it. That used to be me 40 years ago who would say, yeah, I can do it for that little money because I'm 25 and my overhead is not the same as, as one of the big established companies. I think it's a, it's a time where all that kind of chaos and unsettling lack of stability in the, in the architecture of the business model, it's crazy making for the people who are in it. It's great for the people who are now going to reinvent the business because every, 
everything's kind of undone. Production companies are being rethought, how they work. Agencies are being rethought. One of the things that's going to change is it's just you're not going to make as much money and you're going to have to do things simpler. You know, I, my, in, in my, in the time when I was the busiest, you know, the, maybe like the commercial that you were looking at today, the car commercial, I would go to work and there would be three semis, a, ne- a separate generator, five motor homes, 70 to 75 people. Uh, that was my, that was my normal day. You know, it was like the circus would come to town and then it would leave at, at six o'clock. The job I did for the Lincoln project, I had six people and it was too, too many. I'm completely happy now dealing with as few as few as I can. Just give me the basics to do it. But that's kind of my work. You know, while I was doing that down downstairs, one of my partners who does food, you know, he's still got 25 people staring at a hamburger trying to get the fucking cheese to melt the right thing. <laughs> okay. So it'll it'll figure itself out. The hard part is just this weird glitch of COVID or what the Italians call the great interruption. This is our, the industry just had to, just stopped. And now they're figuring out in a, as Alana's saying, you know, in a, it's a very herky jerky way of figuring out how to get it going. Um, but we will, because whether it's for commercials or movies or TV shows, people are glued to their goddamn screens. They just want to look at shit. <laughs> you know, I think that's a really good place, actually, for us to, <laughs> to wrap a, a it up. Brilliant, because, a brilliant place for people. Um, yeah, for you, you, you uh, talk about talk about lead-in. I couldn't have asked for a better, better lead-in. I, I think, really, the, the screen's incredibly important. And, you know, we, we really... We really thank you for for your time. It's been a, it's been a really fascinating discussion. Is you know, of course, everyone needs to go out and and get the book, and we're going to put a link to it in the show notes and everything else. But do you do any sort of social media thing? Is there a place where people could find you if uh, they wanted to follow your your Insta or your Twitter or your thing? Is yeah, that- you know, I've reluctantly started to use it, but I'm, I'm enjoying it. So I have an Instagram account that that I kind of use, which is Bruce Van Dusen. And then the numeral one, which seems so totally fucking obnoxious, but some other guy named Bruce Van Dusen got there first. So I had to mm. do the other. And I thought real Bruce Van Dusen seemed douchey. So, <laughs> um, so I put most of it on, I, you know, I, I put a little stuff about the book and stuff that I'm doing on that. And then most of it's repeated on Facebook. And then I'm, you know, I, I have a website, which is brucevandusen.com, which has a lot of stuff that is other. It's some stuff about the book, and then it's stuff about the movies that I've done and ongoing commercial work that I've made. And I'm even starting to post playlists because I feel like I'm so sick of looking at things sometimes. I just want to hear it. Well, uh, Bruce Van Dusen, director, author of 60 Stories, About 30 Seconds. Thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, I, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. Guys, this was so much such a pleasure. I'm so happy that you invited me to do this with you. So that was Bruce Van Dusen. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And again, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, go to our Facebook page and win a copy of 60 Stories About 30 Seconds. Yes, indeed. Definitely do that. You will not be sorry. Great holiday read for your holiday reading. And now, short ends. <laughs> So, Ben, it's time for our famed short end part of the show. What is your short end? What is your obsession this week? I have a weird one. You ready? (laughs) Nothing new there. I'm buckling up. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, this is even weird for me, but actually it's appropriate given that this is our last episode before Christmas. 
So a friend of mine uh, who lives in Texas reached out to me about a friend of his who found uh, what appears to be the pristine print of a lost movie in her garage. Wow. And the movie, and I looked it up and it's like, it is considered a lost movie. It's a movie I'd never heard of. It's called The Miracle of the White Reindeer from 1960. And there's some stills of it on IMDb if you if you look at it. And it was directed by somebody named Martin Nasik. And I looked up Martin Nasik, and he has a very, very interesting story in that he, he only directed two movies ever. And he was like a famous projectionist. I'm almost positive it's the same guy. I've done a little bit of research. You know, if anyone listening to this wants to do further digging, that's great. And he had a screening room that was like Charlie Chaplin and like all these famous people had screened movies in Martin Nosek's screening room over the years. So I am sort of, this is a short end, but it's sort of me asking if anyone knows or has a connection to anyone who might care about what might be a pristine print or might be a beat to shit print. I do not know which of a 1960 Christmas movie by this Martin Nosek character. Uh, you can you can look up his, uh, his story online and, and it's it's pretty interesting. I could find literally no video of this movie. I don't think it's ever been released on home video. And I have a, a real affinity. I mean, like, I always kind of go down these rabbit holes about old and lost movies because, you know, to me, this is, you know, whatever it is, whoever made it, it's it's part of their body of work. It's it's work that's out in the world. You know, it was meant to entertain or momentarily or longer term. But I feel like also every piece of film that has ever been shot is kind of a in some way uh, a signifier of its own time. And I haven't seen the movie. Uh, this is all happening in Texas. My friend Chris probably doesn't even know that I'm saying this out on the podcast. But it reminded me of when we had the uh, my short end was about uh, Don Coscarelli's lost negative for Beastmaster. And I know you can't necessarily compare these two things. This this wasn't a movie that like had a huge release. As far as I could tell, it was sort of a B picture that that, you know, they they rented out prints around the country. But I think it's a bummer when stuff like this gets lost and when stuff like this turns up in people's garages, it's worth preserving. So that was, uh, it's, it's sort of like haunted me and, and sent me on like a little research spiral. And I think it's, it's interesting and I don't know what they're going to do. The person who found it was wondering if having this print was like worth any real money. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. It's a lost film, but it's not like the Lon Chaney movie London after midnight or something where if you found a pristine print of London after midnight, that would be worth like serious money, but it's also out of copyright. This is 1960. I doubt it's out of copyright. And so it would belong to, you know, Martin Nosek's children or grandchildren or whatever. But uh, anyway, I just thought it was an interesting story. And it's kind of funny that like the print for a movie that was most certainly made here in LA turns up in a Texas garage you know, some almost 60 years later. No, actually 60 years later. That's a great story. And I'm really glad that you shared that uh, with me and, and our listeners here. And you never know. Someone might be hearing this and be like, oh, my God, I remember that movie. Uh, or yeah. 
that, you know, whatever happened to that movie? I, I didn't know what it was. And, uh, I mean, they, they've made podcasts, uh, in entire seasons about less about people like, I vaguely remember this pop song and it became a whole thing. So oh, that's, I know exactly what podcast you're talking about. <laughs> and it was an episode of reply all. And I love it to death. <laughs> well here we might, we might be on the verge of our own reply all thing here because there, there's this Christmas movie and I assume it was a 35 millimeter print that was, uh, you know, found in a garage and that's, uh, that could be transferred. That could be preserved. There's, there's yeah, gotta he be sent me a picture of it and it was four reels and on imdb it says it's 60 minutes and my former projectionist brain says yeah that's probably about four reels it, yeah. it looked like about 60 minutes you know a feature would usually be two more reels than that minimum indeed it would but uh but yeah 60 minutes and a christmas movie sounds about the right sounds about the right thing so. and apparently according to the pictures on imdb there is a chimpanzee in it so you know can't go wrong chimpanzee christmas <laughs> right turn clyde <laughs> anyway, so that's my that is my short end. Ilya, what is yours? Well, since we're still celebrating uh, Mary Glassmas here, D Lensber, I have to bring in lenses. And it's really easy when talking about cinema lenses to talk about really expensive stuff, stuff that is priced to rent. It, it's not affordable, I would say, for most people to purchase. But I'm going to do something different this time. I'm only going to talk about affordable lenses in, in this short end. And there's a really interesting company based in China uh, called Mikey or Mike. There's a there's uh, some debate over exactly how it's pronounced, but um, uh, it's M E I K E, and they make actually some surprisingly good and really affordable cinema lenses. They started off by making them specifically for the MFT mount, which is the same mount that's used for like um, yes, micro four thirds. Yes, the Blackmagic cinema camera and also Panasonic sort of uh, GH Lumix line. Uh, really, really good lenses, and all coming in at under four hundred dollars. They finally are releasing. Uh, the widest lens in that set, which is uh, an eight millimeter. And that eight millimeter has uh, about the equivalent field of view for a full frame uh, camera of about a 16 or a super 35 of about a 12. It's a very, very wide lens, but all of them are extremely high quality, but not to be uh, outdone for people out there who have uh, super 35 size cameras or full frame cameras. They now have new lenses that are coming out. And for people who thought, you know what, I don't want to plunk down several thousand dollars and buy a bunch of lenses at once to have a set of cinema prime. You can do that with these uh, Mikey lenses by uh, buying them one at a time because they're only releasing one at a time of some of these sets. So right now they have the full frame 50 millimeter lens that has dropped and it's $959. Actually, there's a, a sale, which I think goes on maybe as long as uh, it will take for this episode to come out where you save about 50 bucks. But uh, regardless, uh, the normal price is $959. And they're really good. They don't do everything. And these are, these they, are actual cinema lenses. They're actual not still cinema, lenses. No, they're not still lenses. They're not repurposed lenses. They are ground up cinema lenses. And they've made them for now for three formats. The MFT format, the uh, Super 35 format, and the full frame format. And they're all ridiculously good considering the price. In the, in the past, if you paid this sort of money, you'd be looking at maybe... Uh, a vintage lens that you did some sort of modification to to try to declick the aperture, apply cinema gears, do all that sort of stuff. These lenses come that way. And if you wanted to make a small movie, a narrative movie, you wanted to have accurate focus marks and you wanted to be able to pull focus and you wanted a high quality look, it was going to be a lot more money you'd have to spend. Now you can do some really capable stuff with these lenses that are tiny and light. You can use them on a gimbal. And uh, I, I expect that there will be a 
indie film that comes out of the 2021 sort of production cycle that ends up hitting the assuming uh, there is a 2021 production cycle oh there will be i i watched a really great program just the other day about all the people who are making indie films uh during this pandemic right now with really small crews extreme social distancing creating their own bubbles and the, the it, this is going to be i predict a season of extreme creativity and really really big emergences of new talent from people who said you know what i'm out of work or i've got time and i got the gumption and the wherewithal and uh, a little bit of training here to make something and there's people out there who are going to be doing something where you may never see the main face of the of the lead actor because they're always behind a mask it's going to be interesting and it's going to be amazing i i'm fully confident in that uh, it's, it's time to do a reboot of uh, judge dread <laughs> <laughs> you know the Mandalorian never takes off his helmet. The Judge Judge, judge Dread and the Mandalorian. Uh, no no spoilers, but uh, Mandalorian doesn't. Yeah, yeah, he takes off. Yeah, takes off his helmet. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. By the, by the time anyone listens to this, if you're a big fan of the Mandalorian, you've already seen you've already seen it. So, goddamn, what a great episode that was! Holy crap, it was fine. Wow, <laughs> you and I can't be friends. I love the Mandalorian. That. That newest, ep- the last episode of the second season scratched all my Star Wars itches all at once better than any movie has since Return of the Jedi. I enjoyed it as well, but uh, immediately afterwards, my wife was on Facebook and she was reading comments from people who said that they cried. Uh, I'm not going to go that far. I did not cry when I watched the Mandalorian finale. I didn't cry, but I did get the feels. <laughs> Ben, you got the feels, huh? Totally you, gave me a case of the feels. Wow. So, right. uh, how, so how, how Gen Z of you? <laughs> so, <laughs> Ilya, who do we have to thank this week? Let's thank Alana Cody. Let's thank her. Let's do it. Thanks. Holy crap. Alana <laughs> has lined up some amazing interviews. We have some amazing ones coming up soon. Mm. Uh, this past week, we, uh, we did uh, kind of a bucket list interview for myself, so I'm looking forward to getting that one out we'll see uh it'll be soon for sure hopefully yeah hopefully it'll be soon because it pertains to something that's already out Mm. let's also thank uh our intrepid editor ben katz ben katz good work thanks for cutting out some of my stuttering this episode i'm sure yeah boy yeah oh boy and mine too always making us sound like less idiots than we are (laughs) Uh, and no lastly, small. let's thank, thank Kazal Atrachi, uh, who in all likelihood is not listening to this, but you never know. Yeah, Hope he springs he... eternal. <laughs> uh, I'm willing to bet five bucks right now he doesn't hear this. He's probably too busy color grading a great VFX epic that he created in his garage. And uh, he actually did this recently. He, he had like a proof of concept for the sci-fi thing that he's doing. And he shot like a, a guy against a green screen in his garage and did this giant outer space thing. It was amazing. And he did it during the pandemic, undoubtedly. He was somehow was one of these super creative people I talked about who were able to to, to build something and make something. And then he scored it. Yeah, he uh, he pointed me towards a thing where like some people are doing, I think it's like 16 second horror films. And he was like, well, you know, you should get on this and, and you have a baby. So that's even scarier. And I'm like, yeah, t- two year olds are notorious for a taking direction and b not grabbing your camera gear and throwing it on the ground. <laughs> Oh man! Uh, yeah, that's never happened once. <laughs> one, one day, one day, I hope to collaborate with my son, but it's uh, it's 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 a minute from now. So <laughs> he's gonna be three. <laughs> anyway, it'll be like that funnier die sketch with the uh, the landlady. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I actually know the one you're talking about. So, uh, uh, Ilya, where can people find you online? Oh, find me over at Hot Red Cameras, hotredcameras.com. I'm there Monday through Friday, usually about half a day these days, half a day every day. 
Mm. Mm. Yeah, and you can find me at benrockonline.com or wandering around my neighborhood doing the standing version of a fetal position, uh, you know, afraid to go near anyone and pissed off, you know, staring daggers at people without a mask on. But Ben Rock Online is probably more convenient for you if you're listening to this. You can go there. You can see my work. You can find my social media stuff. You can connect to me. You can say hi, whatever you want to do. It's all good. And I encourage you to do that. Go bother Ben you know, in his neighborhood. Bug me. Go, Bug you me know, go in his neighborhood and, and stalk him and wait, wait for if him you, to, If you come to, to my neighborhood, that might, wear a mask and talk to me from 10 feet away. I'll be happy to chat with you outdoors in my neighborhood from 10 feet away. Uh, all right. Well, I hope that everyone enjoyed uh, Bruce Van Dusen. And don't forget to enter uh, the contest over on our Facebook page. Comment and, and find yourself entered. And uh, we'll be back next week with another fantastic episode of Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.